We're going to finish 1 John tonight. I promise. It may be even not too long. Not more than an hour and a half. So, uh, 18 through 21. And uh, let's try to wrap up this evening. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We just prayed a moment ago, so we won't formally pray, but as I've already asked the Lord to guide my words and guide your thinking tonight, let me just give you a couple thoughts here. To I mentioned last week, but I don't know that I ever said in much detail. I would kind of hone in on the word sure, and I talked a little bit around in verse 13 about a sure hope and 14 through 17 about sure prayers. And I want to just finish that, that kind of little uh, slogan, so to speak, there of, in uh, the last uh, segment of first in 18 and 19 about a sure victory. And if you look in 18 and 19, uh, some of the things we see here, and I've got a, a little bit of uh, verse that I want you to look up with me. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, if you stop the verse right there, we're all in trouble. Again, we have this problem of the English limits us a little bit in understanding. We know that John is not saying that one who is born again from that point forward never sins. We know that because we can go back to the first part of the book in chapter uh, 2, for example. Uh, he begins in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you that, so that you may not sin. And so there you could stop and say, Okay, I'm still in trouble. And we are in trouble. Sin is serious for a Christian. But then he says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself, meaning Christ, is the propitiation, the satisfying payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John is, is talking about the practice of sin. If you were to, you, you, as you know, we've worked through the book. John is saying that the pattern of the Christian's life is that the, he or she does not willingly, knowingly, and determinedly stay in sin. It's it's a mindset that it does not mean we do not sin, but it does mean we are never... Oh, we may be momentarily satisfied when we made that sharp-tongued reply and pinned somebody to the wall. But if we belong to Christ, our heart is tender, our conscience, the Holy Spirit's going to work through that and convict us. You know what? That was wrong. And I need to ask your forgiveness, or you need to ask so-and-so's forgiveness. You need to seek to try to make that right. Not You don't undo the sin, but you need to, to bring a sense of rest, restitution there and, and restoration. In We are not comfortable with sin. The lost man is generally comfortable with sin. The only reason he's not is because it, it, if he can get away with it, he enjoys the pleasure and... He doesn't seem to cost him anything. But the Christian is distressed by sin. And the older he or, or she gets in the Lord, the more we're distressed with our sin. 
the more we recognize why we need a Savior. Because our flesh is still bent toward sin. We are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are progressively being sanctified, but we're not there yet. We're still living in a, in a world that is affected by sin, and so we Christians at times sin. But John says, we know that the end of the book in 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I want to give you some verses, and let's take a uh, let's take a a look here for a moment. Uh, Would somebody look up? This is about six verses to read, or yeah, six verses. So, in Romans chapter six, would somebody read seventeen through? 22. Really, we need to read the whole chapter because the premise, it's Romans 6, 17 through 22. While somebody's looking that up, or all of you can, the premise of the chapter that, that, that uh, he's been talking about this incredible salvation that comes through the man Christ. Adam, so to speak, was the instrument by which we went into sin. Jesus is the God-man by which we come out of the enslaving bondage of sin. But he begins chapter 6 in Romans and says... So how should you continue in sin that grace may abound? The idea was that some were some, in, when Paul's writing the, to the church of Rome, some were saying, well, you know what? Since God is such a gracious God, Christine's prayer earlier, that just God's great mercy that He has forgiven us of so much. So then <laughs> the whole fleshly mind drums up this idea, well, you know what? If God's grace abounds by covering our sins, if I send more, God will pour more grace out. So how about I just send some more intentionally and God will pour a bigger dose of grace. Paul says, absolutely not. That is not the calling for the Christian. The Christian is to hate sin. We don't abuse grace in order to somehow supposedly get more grace. We recognize that Christ died, I believe, Christ died finitely for sin. In other words, for all the sin, for all believers who, the elect, who will ever be redeemed, He died for every one of those specific sins. God knows them. Past, present, and future. And, and so... We don't, we don't abuse grace by then deciding that God is so gracious, well, sin's not really such a big deal after all. It's the callous idea that a, a fellow I know once told, I've said this to some of you before, but told his 11-year-old boy, maybe he was about 12, is that, that don't worry about it, God forgives divorce. That was after the dad had run out and left the boy because the dad went off after another woman. Well, sure God will forgive divorce. God forgives sodomy. God forgives divorce. But only for those that are repentant and through Christ are clinging to His righteousness and turn. And as they see that sin, they crumble in humiliation and recognition of their depravity. Even after we're redeemed, there should still be the brokenness, the sorrow for sin. And John is saying in verse 18 here at the very end of the book, after all of this, this, this long and yet seemingly long letter, but it's really densely packed, he says, if we're born of God, there will not be a dedication to sin. There's not going to be an ongoing 
intentional love and practice of sin with no desire to be out of it. The Christian's heart has been reshaped, has changed, it's been transformed. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, we're in the kingdom of light. So increasingly our affections should be drawn to the light, not to the darkness. Now, in Proverbs, uh, one of the verses in Proverbs says that one of the things God hates is feet that run rapidly to evil. You know, that should, should concern us even as Christians. When we're tempted to sin, or when we have those thoughts to sin, uh, it, should, it should grieve us that we have even a, a, an inkling of a desire to want to, to dabble in that sinful thing. Now recognize the grace of God, again, carries us even when we do sin, because Christ is now our Redeemer, if we've been regenerated and born again. But we should have a soberness about the seriousness of sin. What Proverbs is saying there, that that God hates the heart that runs toward evil unrepentantly and wants to live in it. The Christian is not that kind of a person. So that should, should, uh, and that's one of the themes of the book. We don't love sin. That it is not the pattern of our lives. And so, who has the Romans 6, 17 through 22? Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Pardon? Yeah, uh, let me open up there. Is that verse 22, the end of the chapter? Let's see here. Okay, we'll read 23. That's fine. 17 through 23. Very good, Kayla. Thank you. You did an excellent job. Did you see the, the, the picture, the description there? We used to be slaves of sin and now we're slaves of righteousness. We are, we are enslaved to God. But it's not a burdensome thing. In fact, that would go even to that verse 13 in chapter 5. Uh, and not verse 13, verse 3 in 1 John 5 that talks about how the commands of God are not a burden. They're our aspiration, our desire. It's where our affections are now bent to. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. 
But it does mean that there's an increasing longing to be holy and righteous and a growing dissatisfaction as we see the areas in our lives where we're not. But that causes us then to depend all the more on the Lord and ask the Lord to yet free us um, uh, more, another step further, break our desire in that area and change our, our, our bent in that area where we maybe have a tendency to go to. There, there's a change, and, and you see that picture. Uh, Paul says that I'm speaking to you in human terms. He's painting the picture, though, of a slave who his loyalties have been changed from one master to another master. The difference is we now serve a benevolent dictator, a great God who does have the final say. He does, His word will be done, and none of us are going to change it. So He is a dictator. He is God. He will accomplish His purposes. Whereas before we were slaves to a cruel dictator... The, the other thing, though, is he's not the supreme dictator. Satan is ultimately falls as a lackey who will be crushed in hell forever because of God's righteousness and his rejection of him. But nonetheless, he is, the Scripture talks about he's the prince of the power of this air in Ephesians 2, that Satan is a reality. And before we have Christ, we were slaves to Him. He was a cruel master. But now we have been brought free in Christ. And so it is a change, it is truly a change of affection. And so, lest you, and there's so much in those verses there, uh, but uh, you were slaves of sin in 17, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed, to the doctrines of the truths that God has laid out in His Word. But it all comes from a heart change. And I don't mean so much the, the, the emotion like we think of as Americans in our sentimental heart, though it does affect the emotions. I mean, you go back and read the Psalms, and, and not just David, but many of the Psalms. The psalmist's heart is broken when they sin. In, in Psalms 51, when David has been confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and there, his prayer of repentance, David is crushed. And it's more, I think, than just, oh, I was the king and I've shamed, I've shamed the nation and I've let the people down. No, his concern was, remember what he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. You see, that, though, is one of the sweet characteristics of a true Christian is a genuine believer recognizes that above all other things, even their ongoing struggle with sin is not even first and foremost your sin against me or my sin against you. It is our sin before a holy God who gave His Son that we might increasingly be free from sin. But God changes our desire and our appetite progressively changes. So again, that is one of the great tests in the book of 1 John. Has your appetite for sin changed? Has the affection of your heart as it relates to how you view sin been changed? Because according to Romans 3 and Ephesians and other passages, a lost man, he's concerned maybe about getting caught, but he's not concerned about God's view of sin. Now he is, when the Holy Spirit starts to crack his shell and awaken him, then he grows concerned, like Luther, uh, uh, 
John Newton and many others, ladies as well, you know, Fanny Crosby, others who became deeply concerned about their sins. But lest I go too long with that, any comments or thoughts about this issue of no one who is born of God sins? Don't go away saying, because you have sinned, I must not be born again. The, the more important test would be to say, what is my view toward this sin? And where is the affection of my heart? Where is the... How do I, how do I view this in light of Christ? Am I grieved that that sin I just committed was one of those things that the Savior died for. It's still finished, remember. He said it is finished. The debt is paid. But it should still grieve us that He had to die for that in order that it compels us and propels us to follow the Savior all the more closely. And to ask God to, like David cries out in Psalms 19, to keep me from presumptuous sins... And then those hidden faults, those blind things that, that I, you know, I'm so hard-headed I don't even see it and you see it glaring all over me. David cries out with a sense of grief about that and says, Oh Lord, keep me from these things. Um, also, let me give you two more. They're, they're really in the same section. Uh, well... Yeah, John 17, would somebody read verse 11, and then just so we have a voice change, and I can make a separate comment, and then John 17, verse 14 and 15. Similar again about this issue that you see, as you, as you read verse 18, you, you keep going there. It says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, excuse me, he who was born of God keeps him. I didn't read that right. I'm sorry, I'm not saying that right. But he, that is Christ, who was born of God, keeps him, that is the the now saved sinner, the saint. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, now who has those? John 17, 11, that's one of the verses. Anybody have that? Yes, sir. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, through your name, those whom you have given to me, that they may be one as we are. Okay. You see, Jesus says, I am not in the world. And he's about to leave for the cross. And I'm, I come to you, and we know that after the resurrection, he spends a short time back on earth there with the disciples. Then he ascends to the Father to sit at the right hand to wait until the time when he comes back. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. So he asks the Father to keep them in his name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So John said in First John, he who is born, he was who was born of God keeps him, keeps the saint, the saved one, and the evil one does not touch him. That's what Jesus prayed in verse eleven. He was asking that the Father would keep those who belong to him.
who are His own. And then who has 14 and 15? Anybody? Joel? God did not call the Christian to go hide in a cave. Listen, there, there are lots of reasons why sometimes that's probably very appealing. If we could just all a Christian decide, guess what, we're all going to board a bunch of ships and we're going to find us some islands somewhere out in the Pacific and we're all going to form our own little nation and start all over right there. Uh, that's not very probable. I'm not saying it would be wrong to take the gospel to those islands. But ultimately, God didn't, doesn't call us to go somewhere and then pull the roof in over our heads and just, you know, wait till Jesus comes back. He says, but he, he prays on behalf of the disciples and subsequently those who will believe through him that the Father will keep them for, who from? Not even the evil people of the world but from the evil one. In other words, keep them from the controlling power of the prince of darkness. Keep them from the, not sovereign controlling, Satan has no ultimate sovereignty, but he is powerful. We want to remember that. We, we, we as Christians are victors in Christ, but only in Christ. And there, there's another whole discussion about this idea of, you know, rebuking Satan and all these. The, the, the point I'm simply making is we don't want to downplay how powerful the prince of darkness is. The old serpent is. But he is no match for our risen Savior. And so Jesus prays and, and says, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. But I'm asking you to keep them from the ideas from the controlling power of the wicked one, Satan. And so when you look at 1 John, at the end of this, same John here, but years later, he says that uh, the evil one does not touch him, meaning the saint, we know that we are of God, hear the distinction, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It should not surprise us about the tragedies we hear about. In some ways, it probably should surprise us that we don't hear about more. Because darkness is so dark. See, darkness is darker than we realize sometimes. Partly because we, I think sometimes we have had at, at various ventures, in the broad sense as Christians, we probably had a little bit of a self-righteous view about ourselves and don't actually think we're all so bad, really. But as we see the, the restraint of even God's law in America removed, the restraining power of, the, of the, even the common laws that had some connection. I'm not saying we were in the purest sense a Christian nation in all, every way. What I'm just saying, though, we clearly had connections, though, to some sense of moral restraint based upon laws that God defined. This is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is evil. As we see that crumbling and decaying, it shouldn't surprise us that the wicked man does what the depths of his heart tell him to do. It does what his depraved conscience says. We should actually be surprised that there's not more 
But that's the powerful restraining hand of Satan watching... I'm sorry, Satan, excuse me, that's terrible. Of the Holy Spirit watching over His people. God will allow us to go through dark and deep valleys, but He will never allow us to be conquered by the Prince of Darkness. We're safe and secure, and that's one of the things John is saying here in this text. Um, also, uh, Romans 8, would uh, someone read 31 to 39, and someone else read Ephesians 2, 2, and then we'll be kind of through with this, this little section. What, what I'm wanting you to, to remember is that we are not, even, even born again as Christians, we are not under the control of Satan. We are influenced by our fleshly nature that still wants to sin. James 1 tells us about that. It's the sinful impulses of our own flesh that lead us into sin. And Satan stands off to the side and he cannot control us, but he certainly does encourage us onward in the flesh when we operate in it. But we are not under the dominating power of darkness. And a Christian must never, never forget that. We are victors in Christ because Christ rose from the grave victorious. The sin debt for all who are His own has been completely paid. We make the song trite and cheap sometimes, but Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe is exactly true. He paid all sins for all who are His own. Everyone, what we call big all the way down to the smallest, even though they're all big. But in light of that, and our, our still struggle with our flesh on this side of heaven, we must not forget these passages that tells us that Jesus has already prayed that we would not be controlled by the evil one, that we would not be dominated by darkness, and in fact we won't be dominated by darkness, and the Lord will never leave us. He will not forsake us. Who has the Romans 8 section? And this is only a subset of the whole theme of the chapter, but 31 to 39... Somebody want to read it? Faith? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against us, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand? of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Yeah, go ahead and read. Uh, Yet in all, things, all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can't begin to do justice to those phrases in that passage. Just look at them with your own eyes in your own book and, and marvel 
Paul says, I am convinced that not death, you know what, not even life. I mean, there are all kinds of sin opportunities in life. They're everywhere. Not even that. You know what? Not even materialism. Not even the pursuits of vanities of this world. If you're truly born again, can ultimately separate us both from the correcting love of God, Hebrews 12, the disciplining love of God that changes our hearts, continues to change our affections. None of that can separate us. It even means so far as the Hebrews 12 that talks about laying aside the sins and the encumbrances which so easily entangle us. The charge on our side is to lay them aside. But the reminder in Romans 8 and other passages is in Philippians 2 that it is God who is at work in you to work out His good pleasure in your lives. So nothing can separate us from this redeeming love of God through His Son. Not even our sins. Not even our still battles with sin. Not anything the outside world can do to us can do it. Nothing can fracture that saving and sanctifying relationship. Now, I do not mean that therefore, this would be like the Romans 6, well, it doesn't really matter that I take sin that serious. Again, what I tell you, the characteristic of the Christian, the more they mature, is the more concerned about sin they become. The Christian is distressed about it. Not so much, I'm distressed about your sin. Oh, I may see something and think, hmm. But you know what? In the quietness of the moment, if I'm really maturing in the Lord, it is my own that distresses me the most. It is my own sin. My own propensity still to look longer than I ought to look, or to study those dollar figures in greed, or to, and you can fill in the blank, here or here, it is my sins that are the deepest grief to me. But nothing can separate us from this marvelous, saving, and sanctifying love that has come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. But that ought to compel us, like Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, that uh, 14 or 15, somewhere in there, that we should no longer live for ourselves because He has died for us. We're compelled not to live for ourselves. This, this, and the whole book of 1 John is saying this great love that has come through the one who is our propitiation motivates us not to want to live in sin to love the commandments of God, to actually find safety in them and encouragement in them and hope in them. Not a list of rules to obey, but like in the Romans passage that we become obedient from the heart. The list of rules to obey is the legitimate charge of legalistic living. But... Godliness and holiness with even, so to speak, keep studying the commands of God and saying, you know what, this is immodest. This is unholy. This is ungodly speech. This is angry speech. This is whatever. I mean, you can, in all these areas, you know what, that is not legalism to be concerned about that, especially in our own lives. That's just growing, maturing godliness that says, you know what, 
I want to be like the Master. And the Master would never say these words. The Master would never think like this. My Savior would never do that action. So, we are free from sin so that we might be slaves to righteousness. That is, there is holy growth. It's not legalism to pursue godliness unless the pursuit of the godliness is because we're trying to earn it in order to find favor before God. Then that is legalism. But true godliness is concerned about the commands of God. 1 John 5, 3, they're not a burden. He says, you know what? I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to lust. I don't want to covet what you have. I don't... I'm not saying I've always been free of that, but I'm saying you and I as we mature, we don't want to be that way. But it is because of a heart change. And I'm not talking about this sentimental, but the spiritual mind has been changed. So in... When John writes, excuse me, when Paul talks about all of these things that cannot separate us from Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul finds great hope and encouragement and conveys that to the church at Rome. In like manner, John writes to these saints now in the as as what will become eventually he will be the last living apostle. And he writes, and he says, you are not under the power of the evil one. Did somebody have Ephesians 2? Two? Read 1 and 2 for some context. Okay, he says, he's talking to believers now. He says, you used to be like this. You used to walk, First uh, John two fifteen and seventeen, by the lusts of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of uh, the flesh, and I got them out of order. The boastful pride of life. You used to be that way. You used to be under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the, the old dragon, but no longer. You now have been made free in Jesus Christ. Not free to live as you wish, but according to Romans, to live as a slave to righteousness. A slave is concerned about living for his master. Now, I understand that slavery has a horrible connotation in our culture, and it, it probably should in light of some terrible things historically we did as a nation. But in the strictest sense of the understanding of slavery, slavery does not have to be oppressive. A slave can so love his master that he wants the best for the master. And the master is so benevolent, the master is, is lavishing great graces upon that slave. Again, we have a, a different view and, and it, it has some validity. But in the, in the strictest sense, the picture in the Word of God is that when we become a slave of righteousness, a slave committed to Christ... What becomes our greatest desire is that the Master be glorified. The question is, is that true in my life and your life? In the quietness of the night, when you lay your head on the pillow tonight, could you honestly say, Lord, in spite of all of the things that I know 
that start to come to my mind and know I still need conforming into the image of Your Son. There's more work to do, Lord. The deepest desire of Your being is to be pleasing to Christ and to live in such a way that when others really come to know You, they see a little piece of the goodness and the glory of Christ at work in your lives and they're, they're, it's winsome. They're drawn to it. There's something about you that appeals to them. It seems to me that, that God, true godliness and holiness is winsome. Not rules, but, but the morality, so to speak, of God lived out because we have truly become slaves of righteousness. John says, you're not under the power of the evil one any longer. So when he moves on in verse 20, we know that the Son of God is come. He began the very book and talks about this one whom we touched and we heard. And he says, we know that the Son of God has come. That is, it was a past tense event that happened in the future and carries forward with present real reality still. The Son has come. The Son has come and died and risen victorious over all of the sins that would condemn you and I if we're His child. And for all who will yet believe, all of that's paid. And John says that we know that the Son has come and that He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Would somebody uh, read John fifteen eighteen and 19? Fifteen, eighteen, and nineteen. Here you have a picture of the world again, in contrast to those who know the Son. If the world hates you, you know that it is that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right, and so so you see you have the contrast back there in the Gospel of John. That's that exact contrast that you see in verse 19 to 20. You see the contrast that the world is, is ruled and owned by the system led and currently dominated by Satan. But not so for the believer. Because the believer knows that Jesus has come. It is a living reality for him or her. Jesus has come and has risen victorious over my sins. And he is therefore going to finish his work of perfecting me and making me like him. As some of you say, man, he's got a lot of work in you to do. That is very true. And brother and sister, he's got some work to do in you too. In all of us, there is work. But it is a great work of grace. God will finish His work of redemption in the lives of the believer. 
Any thoughts, comments? He has given us 20 understanding that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. And I, I would like somebody to go back and read John 17, 3. You ought to remember this verse. We've read it several times in, as we've gone through First John. If you need to define eternal life for someone, here it is right here. In, in a nut, nut capsule, really small form. John 17, 3. Anybody want to read that? Faith? And this is eternal life. They that may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay. That they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you, the Father, has sent. That is eternal life. Eternal life is not heaven, really. That's the place where the Son will dwell on His throne. You might say the center of His glorious activity. But eternal life is being in a person. The place we will see much of that exercised in one sense is out of the glories of heaven. But eternal life is being hidden in Christ so that we're now in no longer in enmity, no longer in animosity, no longer is there any wrath, but there is only blessing and glory for the Christian. I won't repeat the illustration. If you don't remember it and you want me to ask me later and I'll tell you, but the one I've told you in the past about the Australian wheat fields that burn in the way that the... the the workers, those thousands of acres, and the only way they escaped was to burn that little spot when they saw that fire coming. And then, to lay, once that had burned out, while it's raging, to lay down in that place, and that fire would come and hit that area that had been burned and leap over it and go on, and they were perfectly safe. They were not killed. There's one place that the wrath of God has burned hot, and that was on Calvary. It was it burned against all of the sins of all who will ever be His true child, whether that's old or young, the true elect, the true born again. And John is saying in First John here that eternal life is when we're, there's an old hymn we've sung at a time or two called Hiding in Thee. It's when we're hidden in Christ. It's that place is the place of life. And there is no insecurity in that place. There will never be any wrath poured out upon that. That means that even our ongoing struggle with sins, it's not a struggle before God. According to Psalms 103, He doesn't even see those sins. In terms of, his, in terms of judgment, He does not see them. But it is necessary for you and I to see them, First John 1, to confess them because we need to be increasingly purified until we're permanently and finally in the, in the fullest sense made completely sanctified without any sin. That won't happen in its final form until we either breathe our last or we're caught up to be with the Lord. Whenever that happens, whichever comes first, that's when we'll be fully sanctified. But until that day, we can know whether it's through that death takes us to the Lord or He comes back and takes us all to be with Him in the glories of heaven, that eternal life is to be hidden in the true God in Christ through Christ.
and by Christ. That is, if you want to use that sure sense, that phrase that I was using, that is ultimately sure worship. See, our hope becomes in the fullest sense worship because we want to worship on Sundays. We have what we call, sometimes some call that, I've still stuck to the old word of devotions, but some call it family worship or private worship. And all those are right and true terms. Giving worship to the glory of God. We do it corporately together. We do it in our homes and we do it, hopefully we do it increasingly privately. We're giving glory, we're worshiping Him. But there will be a fullest sense of worship someday that will be revealed in its final sense when we are finally with the Lord. And and in fact, I I want to bring it to a close with, with... you know, two two verses there. Second uh, Corinthians ten five, and then also Luke ten twenty two, and and we'll close with that. Second Corinthians five. Let's read the Luke the Luke ten twenty two first. Here you have the reminder again about who really belongs to the Son. All things have been handed us as Jesus speaking. Really, to get some context, we should read 21. At the very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things, these truths, from the wise and intelligent, have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. So unless the Father reveals it, you can't even know, really know who Christ is. And who the Father is except the Son, you really can't know relation. You can't know, understand who God the Father is except that you know the Son. And to anyone whom the Son wills to reveal Him. You see, our understanding becomes sure and complete as we know the Son. It is through knowing Jesus that we can know the Father. Remember the disciples that show us the Father. He said, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. My attributes and characteristics are identical to that of the Father. doesn't mean that he, he occupies the place in the Trinity as the Father. But Jesus says, if you know me, you know exactly what the Father is like. And yet he says, there won't anybody know the Father unless the Son allows them to understand, to reveal, to come to see that. See, John is saying in this, that when at the end of verse 20, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And he's saying, only those who I reveal this to will know the true God. It reiterates again the onlyness of Jesus. He's the only way, 
the only truth and the only life. There is no other way. And, and you know, we could, we could take from one of the other scriptures that says there is a... Uh, hold on, I had it and lost it. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. You realize Islam, the end of Islam is death. The end of Hinduism is death. The end of Buddhism is death. The end of the New Age religion is death. The end of secularism is death. There's only one way that leads to life. And John says, if you have come to know the Son, then you have life. And thus following the Son, obeying the Son, loving the brethren, growing in Christ is not a burden. It's an increasing joy. Who has 2 Corinthians 10? Anybody? I'll let y'all read that one. And you might want to read, uh, probably for some context, we should read uh, 3 through 6. Doesn't matter. Anybody want to read it? Sorry, sorry, AJ, I may have said that. Ten, yeah, ten, three through six. It's verse five I'm driving to, but for context, read three through six. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Hold us, hold. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that resolveth itself Okay. And Paul Paul there's a much there. But verse five could summarize the essence. He's saying we, we don't fight with physical swords. Remember Ephesians six tells us the sword is the word of God. We do sing, we don't sing it enough. It's actually a good old hymn. Onward Christian soldiers. We understand what that song means. We're not marching with one of our other hymns talks about with swords, loud, clattering or clashing. No. But we walk forward with the Word of God. The, the living Christ conveyed in the Word. That is the sword that pierces the heart of the sinful man and causes the man, the boy, the girl, the lady to see the truth about themselves. And in God's incredible mercy, I don't know how He does it, but He just causes them to crumble just like we prayed earlier. We can't. We pray that, I think maybe A.J., somebody said that, uh, I like that phrase, I've used it many times, that God will bring them to the end of themselves. If you or I are born again, somewhere in the past we were brought to the end of ourselves. We were brought to the place where we said enough. I cannot do this thing. I must have Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean you had an incredibly dramatic conversion. You may or may not have. But you came to the end of yourself. And when a man or woman or boy or girl comes to the end of themselves, the only thing that's left is Christ. And when you close the book out, in verse 21, he says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. You know what he's saying? Don't allow yourself to worship and follow and serve 
anything but Christ. Every thought ought to be captive to the obedience of Christ. Every idea of the world system should be tested against the person of Christ as revealed in the Word. How does this idea stack up against who He is and what He has decreed to be truth? Every thought comes captive to that. The whole point of the book, at the end of the book, is John says, I wanted you to know Verse 13 of chapter 5. I've written this so that you might, you who believe may know you believe in the Son that you have eternal life. And the evidence of that ultimately is that there's only one thing that matters to us and that is Christ. Even, even over our wives and our children and our husbands. Even over our grandchildren, as wonderful as grandchildren are, I haven't gotten there yet, but I have some friends that tell me if they'd known it was this good, they would have skipped the children thing and gone straight to the grandchildren, you know. If, if that was possible, you know what? <coughs> Knowing Christ is greater. But the beauty is, you don't have to not enjoy the blessings of your wife and your husband and your children and your grandchildren In Christ, you can enjoy all of those that God has given you as long or as short as He chooses to give them. Even this family that lost his 17-year-old. When they get past the emotion of the moment, if they themselves know the Redeemer and are steeped in the Word and really know Him, it will not surprise me that the Lord will eventually bring them to a sense and an understanding that as wonderful as our daughter was, we have not lost our Redeemer And she did not lose her Redeemer. The book closes, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Literally, if I was going to use two words to close the book, I would simply say to you, it says, only Jesus. Not jobs, not progression and income, not houses, not family relationships, not extended relationships, not success, not power, Nothing. It all... See, we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the Christian grows increasingly sweeter and sweeter to see that is what they want more than anything else. What they want is to say, Dear husband, come with me as we go to the celestial city. One of our old hymns says, Who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Are you bound for the promised land tonight? That's an important question. Because if you're not bound for the promised land, then the promises that are in 1 John don't apply to you. But if Christ is yours, not for some event, but somewhere in the past, He's let you see your sin, the truth of it, and caused you to turn to Him and you gave up and you surrendered to Him. He broke you. If that's happened, then He's redeemed your soul, your spirit. And He has made you increasingly and will make you dissatisfied with anything less than Christ. And yet that is the great reason the Christian can live One of our other songs says, I want to live above the world, though Satan's darts at me are hurled. Though some may dwell where these abound, 
My prayer, my aim is higher ground. I think that's the way First John ends. My aim, Lord, is never to follow an idol, but to follow you. And the ultimate evidence that we're redeemed is that is the deepest desire of our being, whether we're young or whether we're old, is we want to truly follow Christ. Even over, quote-unquote, church attendance. That is important. And all of the, there's no denigrating the church in the sense of the functions we do. But the evidence within the body of Christ that we know Christ is that first we know who He is, where there's a right confession, that we have an increasing love and desire to obey Him, that we hate sin increasingly more and more, and we love the brethren. And all of that sort of, like I think, not to denigrate, like a good true ham and cheese sandwich when it's all really melted together. And I hope that wasn't almost desecrating it. But to paint the picture in your mind, it's when it's all melted together where you almost can't separate it. You love the brethren. You love Christ. You want to please Him. You want to obey Him. You love His Word. And yes, you interpret it wrong at times. You make mistakes. You... You know, like, was it Calvin or somebody said the best of theologians is probably only 80% correct? You know, we know there's some things we're wrong. Sometimes we're not sure what we're wrong about, but we know we're wrong. But it doesn't change the fact that all of that's melted together. And Christ is at the pinnacle of all of it. You're loving the brethren, loving the commands, but it's all driven by a change from the heart, affections, that says... Only Christ. That's all I want. It it goes back to those words that we sang in that little song last week. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing. Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me His beloved. Let me rest beneath His wings. Well, if you have questions, you can ask me later. If I made a mistake or something, tell me. But let's close in prayer. Father, would you bless the brethren tonight? Would you let us go out with a deeper, intense desire to have only Jesus? Jesus Christ, our glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has brought us from the miry clay and set us upon the rock of redemption, Him who is the rock, who is the living water, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And He has set us on a new journey to progress toward the celestial city, make our wanderings off of the narrow road increasingly smaller and smaller, Lord so that we might ever more truly walk after you. Father, if there's anybody tonight who's struggling with these hard affections, I pray that you might bring them to the end of this war within their being and they might fully surrender to the righteousness of Christ. Give up. Commit themselves to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you bless the brethren. Pray that some of these words in 1 John might come back in the days ahead, that they might be blessed by our great Savior, who is the satisfying payment for all of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank y'all. Have a good evening.